Amen. So uh, as we closed uh, Hebrews chapter 10, we had uh, that statement uh, that the author of Hebrews um, uh, takes from Habakkuk about the just will live by faith. And we hear that uh, at least three times in the New Testament where the authors are telling us and encouraging us that it's going to be uh, by faith that we live, that that's going to be the thing that uh, causes us to grow and walk and you know see and accomplish the will of the Lord. And, and that's uh, you know something that uh, you know a lot of our and, and I do mean our culture, Christianity uh, wrestles with. Because there are so many different opinions about what is faith. And, and people even sometimes don't even realize that there is an opinion about what is faith. I mean, you say that, and a lot of Christians think, yeah, yeah, I got that. I, you know, I know what we're talking about. Well, you know, faith is not a lot of what is implied within Christianity. You listen to certain veins of Christianity, and they talk about it like it's a power that you can wield, you know, that it's something that, uh, you know, is within you and you can cause things to happen. You know, if you just believe that then then this will happen, well, that's not how the scripture describes it uh, even remotely. Okay. Uh, Faith is trusting in Jesus Christ and his capability to accomplish things. I always like to point out that, uh, you know, in the book of Acts, as Peter is uh, arrested and put in prison, and they're going to behead him. Uh, they've already killed James, uh, the brother of John, and, uh, you know, the, the Roman leadership recognizes, hey, that made the Jews very happy. So they grab Peter, and now they're going to kill Peter. And uh, there, an angel appears in the prison and sets Peter free. Well, there's a Bible study going on right there in that town where they're totally afraid that Peter is going to get killed. And they're praying that the Lord would miraculously save his life. Peter is set free by the angel, goes to that house, unaware of the prayer meeting and Bible study is going on, knocks at the gate, a little girl comes out. She's so excited that she leaves Peter outside the locked gate runs in to tell everybody Peter is outside. They're praying for Peter's release. They're praying for Peter to be miraculously delivered from a death sentence. And they say to her, number one, you're crazy. And then secondly, they say, okay, well, maybe you're not crazy. Perhaps what has happened is he's already been put to death and what you witnessed was Peter's ghost outside. They don't have faith that, you know, is a power that they wield, right? That they're praying to Jesus Christ that Peter will be delivered. Peter gets delivered. It is their faith that accomplished that. But it wasn't that, like, it was an energy that they could send over there, right? They're, they're, they're humbly asking Jesus Christ to save Peter, and the Lord does that. We hear many occasions in the scripture where faithful people pray and ask the Lord for something that's outside of his will, and he says, no, you're not going to get that. 
James specifically tells us, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you might spend it upon your lust. You know, something, not even so much sexual or sensual, just something from your flesh. You're asking from a position that is not spiritual. You're asking from something that's from your own heart, your own mind. You know, I mean, I, I often talk about this in regard to marriage. Because many people within the church have come to me over the years and, you know, oh, I'm, I'm praying for a spouse. Oh, great. I'll pray with you for a spouse. And the next thing you know, I found the person. You know, I meet them and I think, oh, I don't know if that's the answer from the Lord. And they're convinced, no, this is the person. And they push through it and get married. And now they're back saying weeks, days, hours later sometimes. You know, how do I pray that God would release me from this? You know, what they thought was God's will... You know, heaven on earth, they've now come to realize is hell on earth, and they're looking to chew their own arm off to get out of the situation. Our flesh, look, if you've not, you've, all of us in this room, most of us in this room, have lived long enough to know that our heart will convince us of things that are absolutely false. And we're convinced, no, this is what I want, and this is what I need, and this is what I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. And yeah, push your way through and then live with the consequences. So much better to pray and leave it in the hands of God. Faith is incorporated in this, right? So you can't just take the attitude of fate and then say, oh, if it's all up to God, then I'm not even going to bother praying. If he's going to do it, then why do I even get involved? When you align your heart with the Lord, so much happens about your praying, Lord, you know, I want to see this accomplished. And if you're truly communicating with him, you'll begin to hear, no, that's not my plan. And then it's so much easier to take when you're actually hearing from the Lord. Just be patient. Just wait. And he's reminding you and teaching you. It, it, it becomes conversational. In the process, faith is not a force. You know, the word of faith movement, Rodney Howard Brown, Lakeland, Florida, uh, you know, Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, Ken Hagen, all of those teachers say that faith is a power. And you can wield that power. They, they take that from Genesis where it says that God, by faith, spoke the worlds into existence. So they say, you know, the divine fiat is the word there. They say, so we can have the divine fiat. This goes so far, you guys, where they say God created through faith, that they say now we can wield that same faith. One, two, three, Benny Hinn is saying, uh, you're a little God. Small g. His words. Not mine. You're a little God. You can create for yourself those things you want. Speak them into existence. If, if you speak negatively, then those things will come into existence. See, that's Hinduism. Right? That, that, that you know, negative confession. You know, you start getting sick. Don't say you're sick. If you say you're sick, you will be sick. No, I'm sick. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? It isn't a matter of whether I speak it into existence or I don't speak it into existence. Am I healthy or am I sick? If I'm sick, then I need to pray and ask the Lord to heal me and deliver me and walk me through this process. But I can't speak. I feel you're poor, speak yourself into wealth. This is their mindset. This is what they teach from the pulpit. And they always teach that, right? Health and wealth amongst the most unhealthy, most impoverished communities in the world. You want to be wealthy? The whole, everyone there, you're in a third world country. Of course they want to be wealthy. They saw you fly in on a jet. You think they don't want that for themselves? So, so they're automatically, so give to me, support my ministry, and God will bless you. They're just robbing the body of Christ. They're manipulating the word of God to accomplish what they want. Faith, faith is trusting in the substance of Jesus Christ. That's what this is going to tell us. It's not, it's not how much you believe, it's what you believe in. Right? Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, right? he's talking about if you simply place the smallest amount of faith in the one who's completely capable, then you're going to be okay. Right? You can have a massive amount of, I believe I can do it, and you place all of that faith in the wrong thing, and you're going to experience tragedy. So, let's hear what Hebrews chapter 11 has to say. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So you got to rewind all the way back down to the source of this faith, right? That's the Lord himself, God. And really what we're talking about is Adam and Eve in creation. They walked with God, right? I mean, is it really faith at that point when you can reach out and touch him? Oh, no, it is. Because they can't do anything of themselves. This being that they walked with in the garden in the cool of the day brought everything around them into existence. So therefore, they're trusting him. What has happened is the connection has been lost. The separation began there with Adam and Eve. And over the history of mankind, the gap has grown to where now, right, what we're hoping in, we say hope, right? It's not a matter of, like, we say hope, right? Well, I bought a lottery ticket. I hope I win. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I don't know if yeah, I just heard somebody uh, give a breakdown of that. Your odds are one in 300 million. One in 300 million. Wow. Like, so if you're going to win the billion dollars, one in 300 million, right? There's 310 million people in America. Okay, so, so, so let's reverse the process. You're going to walk aimlessly through America and you're going to choose a door of a house to knock on. And when you knock on the door of the house and they open up, that's going to be the house with the million dollars, the billion dollars in it. One in 300 million? Well, I mean, what are the odds you're going to choose? What would be the odds that you choose the right one in Ellsworth? Right? We need alone 
310, 300 million. That's crazy. That's 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 a different hope, you guys. That's that's the let me roll the dice, you know, that has like 310 million sides on it, <laughs> and hope, hope that I get this. No, that's that's not hope in regard to the scripture. And we go back to Genesis. There's the Lord in the garden. Adam and Eve fall. You know. Next big marker, Noah, trust the Lord. Next big marker, you know, I'm, I'm just choosing for myself. There's, there's Abraham, you know, move along, Joseph, move along, all the way through the prophets, all the way through David, all the way through, and then Jesus Christ arrives. All that we see laid out in the scripture, right? The evidence of things not seen. You don't see these things. But, but we have the evidence that they are and that they've taken place. We can trust this. The hope we have is not this mindless, empty faith of just shot in the dark, blind faith, as they say. The evidence is in place. Now, faith, see, this isn't just like, uh, you know, poetic phraseology. This is literally the author of Hebrews saying, okay, we've got to stop and define what faith is. Faith is the evidence, right? The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. For by it, elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds which were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are not, excuse me, are seen, were, were not made of things which are visible. And, and you know, that was what we were talking about just before church started. Is is the fact that everything we are experiencing right now is made up of unseen particles. The world around us is constructed of atoms, and and the, the 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 thing about atoms in regard to what we're talking about here, the things not seen, the things seen is we now understand that everything we're experiencing that we think is so solid, this table we think of as so solid, this this is more empty space here than there is solid matter. You know, you've, you've taken those magnets, you know, probably at least as a kid, and you've taken those light-charged end north and north, and you've tried to press them together, and it gets all slippery, and you can't fix them together, right? The, the atomic structure of this is the same way. My, I can't press through this. My hand doesn't pass through this table because the light-charged particles that make up my being connect with the light-charged particles of this, and, and, and so we call this solid. The space inside the atomic structure of all things is mostly empty space between the particles. If you were to blow up an atom right, to the size of a basketball, the nearest particle spinning around, so they're so small, blow it up to the size of a basketball. The nearest particle would be 3,000 miles away, was around a circle. There's a huge amount of space between all of these things. This is electronic interference that we're experiencing right, right now. What you're sitting on is much more space. It's, it's astonishing that when you sit down, you don't just pass through the chair. Your atomic structure 
interferes with the atomic structure that's there and, and you are repelled from it and you have your own state of existence. There's more space around us. It, 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 the scientists now say that if you were to compress the entire Earth, removing all of the space so that each of the particles was slammed right up against the other, it would weigh just as much as it does right now, but you could fit it inside a laundry basket. There's a massive amount of empty space in all of creation. We are made up of unseen particles. Now consider, what are your thoughts? Right? Because your body contains your thought process. We make this interconnectivity so solid that we think of our body as our entire person. There, there is a, a ghost, as they say, inside the machine. You really have to consider, like, how did the ghost get there? Where does the ghost leave when the body shuts down? There's a bunch of elements to our personal frame that's really quite remarkable. You know, uh, I don't buy into a lot of, you know, the, the whole out-of-body experience stuff. There are some things in the scripture that talk about the separation of the body from the spirit, you know, so I think a lot of it is imagination. I think it's impossible for us to definitively say this is the way it is or that is the way it is, but we have some interesting accounts uh, of people who in tragic experiences, you know, describe the details of what was going on in the entire circumstances, even though by everyone that was attending to them, they were dead. As though the spirit were separated from the body. There's some weird stuff that we can't explain. You know, science wants to say it can explain everything. Okay, then go ahead and explain love. Like, why do parents love children? Like, like lay it out for us scientifically. What it, what it is, right? Because realistically, you know, at least by the time they hit 13, <laughs> that should have evaporated. Because those people turn into, wow, they are something else. So anyway, my point is love. What is that? What is it? It's an energy, really, so we can measure it. So, so it's an emotion. It's a, what is emotion? What is it? There, there is a state of existence, right? All I'm trying to say is there is a, a huge portion of our state of existence that science cannot explain. You know, they, they all say that, well, scientifically speaking, you know how broad that is, scientifically speaking? You know, the things that have changed over time, the opinions that were just so rock solid and everybody was so convinced were absolute. You know, gravity, right? You know, based upon the size of the mass, the mass has its own energy and causes a gravitational field which pulls object toward itself. The sun has gravity. Well... You know, John Armstrong was in charge of the Voyager expeditions, two satellite spacecraft that were launched out of Earth through our entire solar system, that one year apart to map and photograph, um, you know, our solar system as they traveled out through. You've, you've seen pictures that Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have taken. They're astonishing. Really, you know, tens of thousands of miles you know, from, uh, what, the, the moon is 120,000 miles away, you know, you know, so how far away is Jupiter? <laughs> try to, try to imagine, well, you know, 
Voyager 1 was close, you know, in proximity, 10,000 miles from Jupiter photograph. We got, you know, really amazing. We realized, you know, Saturn's rings were all separate particles until Voyager passed by, sent the images back. You know, it was that one ring. And then we realized, oh, no, it's many rings. As it gets closer, we realize, oh, this is just a scattering of mostly ice particles that we see from Earth as a single ring. You know, details out there. John launches those with NASA out through our solar system, and he doesn't tell anybody a problem that he discovers in the very first months. As he's trying to align satellite dishes with uh, the um, satellite that's out in order, Voyager 1, it's not where it belongs. He, he's pointing a satellite right there, and he can't find it. So that kind of concerns him at first, like, have we had a catastrophic failure in Voyager 1 doesn't exist anymore? So he does, you know, his calculations, and he, he brings the satellite dish, which is massive, back through the line where Voyager 1 is traveling. And he finds Voyager 1, but it's much further back from where it should be. Right? And he says, oh, well, that's really bad, you know, because once, right, any of us that understand gravity, once launched, if it's not interfered with, it could continue at that rate of speed until it meets an object which stops it, and it's not where it belongs. So that, you know, by calculation means it's slowing down. So he does the calculation based upon, well, it was supposed to be there, and it wasn't. It was way back here. Stay with me, class. And he says, well, if it's there, then the next time I look at it for it, the rate of that slowdown, then it should be way up here. But given this rate, then that means it's going to be here. And sure enough, he dials into it the second time, and it's even further back. It's slowing down. Like somebody's got their foot on the brake pedal. And John says, wow, that is a mess, man. <laughs> like something must be wrong. There's damage, there's interference, you know, it's off-gassing something that's causing it to slow down. Why in the world is this thing slowing down? He doesn't tell anybody this. He keeps it to himself. And based upon his calculations, he says if, if that is damaged, then, then that'll be fine with one. But if it's not damaged and it's something we don't understand, then two is going to be doing a similar thing. They've launched them a year apart from one another. And sure enough, once they've launched and he looks for two, two is not at its appointed spot in space. And he has to calculate backwards using the same slowdown rate as the previous one. And sure enough, both of them are slowing down. He does the calculation, and not only does he find these things are going to come to a dead stop. Millions of miles from Earth long after we were able to communicate with them. They're going to come to a dead stop in space, and no one can explain why. He does all of the calculation and comes to discover in the process, gravity is not what we thought it was. There is a force unseen that's interfering in identical pattern with Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 that's going to bring them to a dead stop in space, and we have no idea what it is. He goes to the World Scientific Board of Mathematics and makes that presentation after he's calculated the whole thing, and 
he rocks the entire physics world with, you guys, we don't even know what gravity is. We don't know why this is working this way. He wins the Nobel Prize in mathematics that year for his presentation. And he doesn't have a conclusion. He doesn't say, I've calculated this and I've figured out what gravity is. He just says, I've done the calculations and gravity is not what we thought it was. There is an unseen force in the universe that is stopping Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And he presents all of those mathematics and quickly everybody goes back to their calculations and sure enough, they find the same thing based upon these projectiles. Not sure. Science. Well, oh, well, based on science. Based on science doesn't tell us a lot of things. We, we, we are able to observe and repeat certain things and come to certain discoveries. But uh, the whole of our society, are we constantly being shamed as Christians? Well, that's completely unscientific. You believe in God? That's not scientific. It's not scientific. God created science. How is that not scientific? You know, everything we're experiencing day to day, we really need to just set aside the concept that logic and reason are the end all of belief systems. Yes, they are massive contributing elements to what we know and understand, but there is also God that's completely outside our whole state of existence. That we need to live our lives, right? The just will live by faith. Uh, where do you find that? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God is what, you know, the, the word of God tells us, Romans 10, 17. We need to be students of the scripture. And there's going to be many times that the scripture says something in our hearts and minds, either dramatically or mildly, we're left saying, I don't know if I agree with that. Guess what? It really doesn't matter if we agree with it. Okay, this is living by faith, is, is looking at the Word of God and understanding this book claims to be God-breathed. If it's false, if we find the error, if we see the post where it's wrong, and, and, and trust me, right? I look around the room and I don't see anybody that's capable of finding the error, including myself. I don't mean to insult us all, right? But there have been incredibly intelligent people for thousands of years that have been doing their best to try and refute what's in these pages. And it's always astonishing to me when, you know, you click on something and here's some local yokel guy who's like, I've discovered why the Bible is wrong. Really? Thank goodness for you. After all these years, if only we had been hanging out in your, you know, I don't know, a double wide or whatever. You just, you know, I say that as, you know, someone who lives in a double wide. <laughs> so many people, it's arrogance. It's arrogance. Living by faith, you guys, we should not look at that like, oh, I kind of, kind of keep that to myself. You know, I don't, I don't want to tell people that I live by faith. I don't want to tell people, you know, if I do say I live by faith, then I've got to have this, like, massive explanation, you know, scientifically, for what that means. No, you really don't. If you do, great, wonderful. I, I love science. I'm a serious student of science. I love apologetics. I like all of that stuff. But in the end, 
You're, you're extremely safe to just trust God's word. Live by it. Learn it. Know it. Let it be your guide. Let it be the thing that fulfills your life. So again, verse 3, by faith we understand that the world's were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. I want you to notice, right? Framed by the word of God. Framed by the word of God. Keep your bookmark there. And if you want to, go back to the book of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John right there at the beginning of your New Testament to chapter 1. And, and here it is in verse 1. In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then, verse 2, he, referring to the Word, was in the beginning with God. All the things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. He, him, the word. Now drop right down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It goes on in great explanation to say, that Jesus is that word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. Hebrews just told us that the entire worlds of creation, so the entire universe was created by the word, right? Now we're back to Genesis. You can lose your bookmark in John, keep your bookmark in Hebrews, and go back to Genesis chapter 1, Verse 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. The darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Light be is literally what he said. The Word brought everything into existence. And every single thing that God creates, as we read the Genesis account, He speaks and it becomes. So that might all seem very mystical to you, but jump to where we are today in our understanding of creation. And scientists who have an open mind looking at this are astonished with the realization that everything that exists is made up of DNA. All living things have DNA. And DNA is a written language. A digitally encoded written language. God spoke everything into existence by word. We are made up of words. We're made up of a construct of digitized language. Scientists are astonished to realize that what we're handling is a written code. Now, all of this nonsense about evolution, right? 
evolution. Okay, so so let's have this discussion for just a moment. It really does pertain to what we're looking at here. By faith, we understand that the words were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Go straight down through everything below atomic level, and you come to DNA inside that structure. You know, Michael Behe, the world's leading microbiologists, wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box that you might want to get your hands on. And he gives this illustration, which he coins the phrase irreducible complexity. The scientific side of it is that evolution says any given structure, whether it be a single-celled amoeba or the complexity of the human frame, any given structure changed by adding elements to itself. That makes sense to everybody, right? You know, you didn't have eyes way, way back, you know, long before we were monkeys, long before we, we didn't have eyes. We knew we needed eyes. How did we know we needed eyes? I don't, you know, I don't know how we came to that conclusion, but okay, needed eyes incorporate it. So, not mocking it, literally the concept says, didn't have, needed, added to. This is, this is the world's leading microbiologist saying, this is what evolution is saying. So, the reverse of that whole understanding is, right, that the survival of the fittest says, if you do not have, if you are in need, then that which is around you will destroy you. Right? If you live in an environment where it's filled with predators and everybody's got claws and teeth, and you don't have claws and teeth, you're lunch. You, you, can't, you can't add to yourself if you don't have. He takes single-celled amoeba and talks about the flagellum, which is like a corkscrewed hair. And that spinning flagellum allows the amoeba to move through liquid and collect food source for itself, which allows it to produce a another, a duplicate of itself. It does that by the DNA structure that's inside. If it doesn't have the, the flagellum to propel itself through the water, through the liquid, whatever liquid it's in, it, it cannot gather for itself, so it will not survive. If you take the flagellum away, it doesn't survive. The flagellum is made up of 40 individual parts that are gears, by the way. It's an electrically charged 40-part gear-driven motor that is water-cooled. That's the flagellum, right? It spins at 1,500 revolutions a second. It can stop and reverse in a quarter of a turn. Spinning clockwise in 1.1500 RPM, it stops in a quarter turn and reverses itself. That's a really complex mechanism inside a single-celled organism. To reconstruct that, it does it from DNA. To, to simplify it, can't even go through all the complexities of it, particles inside that single cell come to the DNA strand that's inside it, unwind it, right, because it's a, a double helix, so you unwind it, split it, identify the section 
that it needs to copy for the element. If it's going to reproduce one gear, it, it copies by putting corresponding chemicals that correspond to the DNA strand that they've untwisted and split down the middle, and now they're copying the DNA, making what is known to some of you as RNA. It takes the RNA to a portal in the side of the single cell, and the portal reads the RNA. If the portal recognizes that there's a flaw in the copy, it will not open. It makes the particles which have transported it there, take it back, disassemble it, go to the DNA again, unwind it, split it down the middle, and copy it again. It will do that until it builds a proper, proper copy of the RNA to the portal. It will open up the portal and allow that to transfer outside of the single cell amoeba, where corresponding particles bring the chemical structure to create the molecule when all of those pieces have been put together, they fold up on their own into whatever it is they're copying, the gear or the mechanism. Now here's the thing, it does it in order, right? Because if you're building a house, you don't start with the shingles for the roof, right? And work your way down to the foundation. You don't stand up all of the doors and then try to frame around it. You start with the foundation and you build up. All of those particles go to the DNA in order. They start with the foundational elements. They transport them outside. They begin the structure. You've seen them in a microscope where one cell is here and there starts this little sort of blurb off to the side and boom, boom, now there's a second one. That's everything that was going on in what I just described to you. Does this sound like an accident? Again, all of it built and constructed based upon DNA, word, written blueprint. Everything inside that single cell is reading the blueprint and, and literally going, well, no, that, no, that, oh, phase one right here. Got to start with the foundation elements. And it always starts with them. You know what, I don't mean to be cruel in any way, but you have to understand how complex this is. Because when there's a minor, I'm talking a fractal minor error in the construct, you end up with things like Down syndrome children. Simple errors result in catastrophic failures. Most of the time, they result in catastrophic failures where life can't even be created. No mistakes anywhere along the way. So you're telling me that at some point, a single-celled amoeba was laying around and saying, you know, if I do not get a flagellum, I'm going to perish here, and the species will not continue. Where did the first one come from? Where did the DNA come from? Where did the blueprint come from? According to what we're reading right here, hear it again in light of that. By faith. By faith. You accept. Right? What I just gave you, you might be sitting there going like, well, now I can believe a lot more. <laughs> okay? Throw all of that out and understand this. By faith, we understand that the words were framed by the word of God 
so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. God brought these things into existence by speaking them into existence. Once we grasp this concept, it goes all the way through our existence. We can look at the news right now and see the chaos that is our world, and you just turn the pages to the back of the book and you see God wins. We're on the winning team. Look, do you want to get to the finish line? I'm literally asking that of this room today, right? Do we not want to see Jesus Christ on the throne? Do we not want to see the millennial reign? Do we not want to be in his presence for eternity? We have to go through these things. We have to. So you trust the Lord. You build your faith. You get up and you get in the Word every day. Why? I don't understand what it does. Right. By faith, you don't understand what it does. By faith, you do it because the Word of God encourages us, tells us, I would say commands us to do it. Be in the Word. Let it build your inner man, as Paul said, the child of God that is inside you. you know, I, I've talked to many Christians who have said, I just, I don't know, man. I, I get up and I read and it's just all very bland and blank. I don't get a lot out of it. So what? Right? Continue to add. Right? Listen, right? have we not learned through the parallel example God has given us, right? Food source, right? Food source. What's going to make you grow, right? Is it going to be Twinkies? Or is it going to be green beans and steak, right? What's it going to be, man? You know, sure. You know, Mountain Dew Doritos and Susie Q's are, I don't know, thrilling when you're a kid, but uh, d does that give you health, Right? Oh, this bland dietary consumption. This is exactly what the nation of Israel said as manna was coming to them every day from heaven. And they literally got in place. They were like, oh, we have is this miserable manna. <laughs> Free food every day on the lawn. I can't stand it anymore. You know? Consume. Consume God's word. Take it in. Right? There is a child of God inside us that needs to grow. Needs to grow. Right? We've all fed the flesh plenty along the way over the years, right? Give it, given it all the things that made it like a Herculean giant. <laughs> we, we took the flesh to you know the sinful gym every day and worked out all day. We just kept plugging the, the sinful you know, steroid thing into it that made it massive. The child of God, you know, emaciated, sick, imprisoned, you know, imprisoned in sin. And then you hear the word of God and say, that's it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to conquer this flesh. And your little tiny, measly Christian gets trounced by your flesh. Almost instantly. As soon as it raises his head and says, I'm going to live for the Lord. Smack down. Just... Metal folding chair, right? To the side of the head. Just <laughs> done. Done. 
have to we have to live by these things. The just will live by faith, you guys. Live by faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Not, not just to the unbeliever, right? Oh, we need to go and preach to all of those poor souls that don't know the Lord. Yes, that's very true. But also to you and I. Growth, maturity, strength come from being in the world, being in fellowship, right? Singing songs of praise, worshiping the Lord, sharing our faith with others. These are the things that cause us to grow. That allow us to be stronger. Let's start a few of the examples as we begin this. We won't get very far. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gift, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So, uh, there's a lot of opinions out, out there. I'll just sort of try to, you know, simmer this down to what I understand from this. Abel, Cain, Abel, Adam and Eve, their two sons, they bring, according to Genesis, their sacrifice to the Lord. Abel brings a lamb to sacrifice before the Lord. Cain brings the fruit of the ground, whatever that means, you know, vegetables, gardening, uh, whatever. It's not that God doesn't want or like vegetables. It's that apparently from what this is, right, because it is a more excellent sacrifice, God wanted a lamb. And Abel brought it. You know, there's a lot to examine about Cain bringing the fruit of the ground, because you know that can easily be summarized with the idea that you know that was the sweat of his brow, his work, his labors, his planting, his weeding, his cultivating. He brings, and that that is a um, quite a summary of religion, right? I mean, we're here tonight. A lot of it is like. You know, our works. Like it's Wednesday and I could be resting. I could be doing chores. There's a whole bunch of things I could be doing for myself. I'm sacrificing all of those things I could be to in order to be together with the body of Christ. So, so you putting the effort in, you know, it's Wednesday, it's Sunday, it's, it's Sunday evening. People get into that repetition of this is what I do. This is, this is my method. This is my practice. So we, we can turn a relationship with God into nothing more than routine. Just, it's that time, so hit the buzzer, press the button, however you want to look at it. I'm doing the religious thing. So, so we can take something that's good and turn it into our own works. In this picture right here, uh, you go to Adam and Eve's sin. And God sacrifices an animal. I assume it was a lamb or sheep, but I have no evidence of that, direct evidence of that. But an animal loses its life, and God takes its skin and clothes Adam and Eve in animal skin. Now, 
If you're living in a perfect world where you walk in fellowship with God every day in the cool of the day, and you've been hanging out with all of these critters, which are no threat to you. Animals are pretty interesting, aren't they? They, they have personalities, and you learn, like, some of them are really good personalities. Others of them are terrible personalities. You know, it's just interesting on how you look at things, but they have personalities. One of these animals that you've learned about for however long you suddenly watch God kill it and skin it because you have the overwhelming painful realization of your nakedness due to your sin. That animal just died because of your sin. That, that's, that's heavy duty. When, when you've never seen death before. You've never seen God act in a way that could be considered anything other than good. And now you're watching him take the life of another being in order to cover you up. The next time we see anything reflective of that is Abel sacrificing a sheep. We go all the way through to Jesus and we're told, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' life sacrificed on our behalf. That first animal, I think it was a sheep, but even if it wasn't, it was sacrificed for Adam and Eve. Now Abel is sacrificing. Here's another concept. According to the scripture, none of them ate meat until after the flood. So why even keep sheep? Other than to sacrifice to the Lord. Right? So his effort is seemingly all in obedience to this image of, I am a sinner and I need my sins covered. Substitutionary atonement. An animal will die for my sins. Instead, Cain shows up basically saying, I'll worship God by giving him the things that I have produced. There's no recognition of sin in that. There's, there's no substitutionary atonement. There's no life for life, right? Because sin produces death. Sin produces death. 100% of the time, sin produces death. No matter how small it is, sin produces death. And what God was saying is, it can be your death or will use animal sacrifice to substitute for you. Abel is obeying God's mandate. Cain says, I'm going to do it my own way. How many people have you spoken to? Maybe you're one yourself that says, oh, I've read the scripture, but I don't look at it that way. I'm going to worship God in my own way. Guess what? We don't get to do that. This is the whole point of living by faith. This is a very deep subject on our personal conduct. Are you examining the word of God, hearing what it says, and being obedient to it? Or are you saying, nah, I don't define it that way. I know the word of God does, but I don't. The word of God defined the sacrifice that was supposed to be brought to him as a lamb and able was obedient in that, Cain was disobedient in that. The just will live by faith. 
It's so interesting to me to see little tiny things in the body of Christ where the church suddenly decides, eh, we don't need to do that anymore, and they pull away from the Word of God. Well, you know, a gap this big, when you follow that all the way down the path, gets really massive. You have to see... A lot of people don't understand that where this all fell apart was when Lucifer showed up in the garden and said to Eve, Did God really say you can't eat of that tree? Simplify that. Did God really say? Did God really say that marriage is between one man and one woman? Did God really say that homosexuality is sin? Did God really say that men should be the leaders of the church? Did God really say? The temptation has never changed. The source of the temptation has never changed. It's questioning God's word. What is the foundation of everything here, you guys? It's God's word. We just heard, right? By faith, we trust, we know, we understand that everything was framed by God's word. But then we, in our practical behavior, deviate from it. God is warning us that to whatever degree you've pulled away, you need to re-adhere yourself to God's word. What is going on in our culture, outside our four walls, what you're seeing on the news is a culture gone mad with having departed from God's word. I'll tell you one more time, right? 1963, we make the decision as a nation, we don't want God in the public schools. We kick God out of the public schools. From 1963 to 1973, there's a 500% increase in violent crime in America. And everybody's going, wow, what in the world happened? Look at what we're doing right now. The degree to which we are shoving God out of every facet of our environment. I don't mean to be crass at all when I tell you, you do that, there is hell to pay. But what is coming is beyond people's imaginations. You know, they're looking at it like, oh, it's going to be terrible. I don't think you have any idea how terrible it's going to be. The, the, the generation right now that is experiencing this and being molded and shaped by this, where are they going to be when they're 20 years old? God help us, right? I'm 50 years old uh, today, 52 years old as of February. Uh, I'll be 72 years old in 20 years, and I'm going to be at their mercy. It's going to be a scary prospect. Scary prospect. The thing that's going to correct all of this is that return to God's word, that return to what it is that he has to say to each of us. One more. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death, was not found, because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith... It is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Notice that, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 
diligently. Right? I was a teenager. My mother's present tonight. She would say to me, go get the thing. And I'd come back moments later and be like, it's not there. <laughs> then she'd say, yes, it is. Go back. It's right next to that other thing. I just put it there. Look. I'm not looking. I don't want to do what's being asked of me. I don't want to go get the thing, and I don't want to go do the thing with the thing that I'm going to have to do. So no, not there. Right? I'm not diligently seeking. We all know what that def definition is about. It's right there. We're where? Sixties and seventies. A lot of the hippie culture was claiming I'm a seeker, man. <laughs> no, no, you're not. No, what you are is a wanderer. You have you have no desire to find destination at all. No. It wasn't written by Tom Petty, but he popularized it when he said, when you don't know where you're going, any road will lead you there. Right? That's, that's a lot of our culture. Just aimlessly wander. If you diligently seek the Lord, you will find him. Right? He gave that promise. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be opened to you. Right? And, and both of those statements, all of those statements are given in the constant tense. If you are continuously seeking, you will continuously be finding. If you are continuously knocking, it will continuously be being opened to you. We have to be very diligent about this process. To examine Enoch just briefly in the couple of minutes that we have left, we've only got a few verses about him back in Genesis chapter 5, looking at verse 24. You can take the time to do that on your own. But Enoch, right, is this interesting character that the scripture tells us that he walked with God and then was not. Meaning, in the complexity of language, that he was taken by God. He did not die. He was transported from here into heaven without ever experiencing death. Here's the thing, you guys. The very first image we get of God's wrath, right? Genesis, the origin of all things. Genesis chapter 6, Noah's flood. Because of the overwhelming sinfulness of humanity, God floods the whole earth and just wipes the whole thing clean to start over. Because the entirety of Earth's culture had become incredibly sinful and incredibly murderous. So God says we'll start the whole program over. We'll take these eight people, we'll put them inside that box, we'll let them out, and we'll populate the Earth with them. Back to science, it's so interesting that the Human Genome Project has discovered that there are two bottlenecks of humanity genetically. One comes down to four genetic codes, and the other one comes down to one genetic code. Noah, and then Adam, confirming what the scripture says, or the scripture confirming science, whichever way you want to look at that. Enoch, who was Noah's grandfather, and God took him, 
from the earth before the judgment. The beautiful aspect to hang on to is judgment is just ahead of us. God's wrath is going to be poured out upon this earth. He promises it throughout the scripture. Jesus spoke of it very, very clearly. Matthew chapter 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, and then the entire book of Revelation. What's going on right now in Afghanistan, particularly with the alignment of uh, Pakistan and Iran and Russia, is going to fulfill probably very soon. It could be sometime before. But right now it's lining up to fulfill what is written in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. If you've never read those before, go home and read Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. As Moscow, Russia, uh, um, uh, Magog, comes down out of the north to try and invade Israel and conquer them. And they've wanted to do that for some time. Vladimir Putin wrote a book uh, in the early 90s called The Last March South. It was effectively his mind Kampf, where he's saying, we need to capture Israel and all of its resources, and our troops need to be on the shores of the Mediterranean in their summer uniforms. I'm, I'm summarizing very quickly. Vladimir Putin has built the, the largest gas distribution and refinement uh, facility that, that goes from Russia all the way back through Europe, you guys, with American contractors, by the way. Absolutely colossal industrious uh, process that they went through. You have the largest uh, natural gas distribution and usage. Uh, natural gas in a lot of European countries is, is a utility just like everywhere else. You got, you know, electricity and natural gas everywhere. And steam, interestingly enough. Uh, he recognizes that Israel now has the largest natural gas reserves in the world, discovered in the early millennium, uh, known as the Leviathan gas fields. Millions of metric tons of, of uh, natural gas underground that they found. He wants that so bad, you can't even believe it. The scripture says, the Lord says, speaking, that he will set a hook in the jaw of Magog and drag them down out of the north to destroy them. They are salivating right now at the fact that the American president just let Afghanistan fall to terrorists. That, that means that we're not going to help Israel, that we're not going to help Syria, that we're not going to help any of those countries. We're just going to let Iran and Russia bulldoze whoever they want. Read Ezekiel chapter 38 and understand that God's fulfillment of these things is, is uh, preceded by God taking those like Enoch off from the earth. First Thessalonians chapter 14, right? God, the rapture of the church. Enoch is an example of that. He walked with God and was not. My encouragement to you as we close, walk with God. Be in fellowship with God. Abandon all other things. I mean, just, uh, you know, consider 
what you might be able to sacrifice. You know, that you would rather than live by earthly things, that you'd find your fulfillment, your contentment, your knowledge, all that your, your heart is longing for, that you would find it in the Lord rather than in the things of the world. Because we are right on the threshold, right on the threshold of these things being fulfilled. You know, if it doesn't happen instantaneously, don't be disheartened, right? The question was asked. Peter answered. When people say, oh, God, you know, he just takes forever doing things. He says he's going to accomplish something, but he doesn't. Uh, Peter said, you know, don't be deceived. God is patient, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to salvation, all would come to repentance. Right? My wife was just commenting that when we came to the Lord in 1989, we were both seeing things happen in the world. We were praying for the return of the Lord. You know, how, how many in this room have come to the Lord since 1989, right? So, so patience. And if God waits a little longer, it isn't because he's failed. It's because that's how generous he is. And that's how gracious and how kind he is. He's certainly giving us enough warnings right now that what he has promised in the scripture will be fulfilled. We're, we're watching it happen, you know, live stream right in front of our eyes. So the encouragement again, walk with God. Be in fellowship with him. Let him be your fulfillment in all things. Amen? Live by faith. Let's stand and we'll pray and we'll pick up uh, next week. We'll probably be back up. Uh, just to set ourselves in order, but we'll definitely uh, pick up with at least verse 7 next week. Father, we thank you very much uh, for your love, for your graciousness, for your word. Uh, help us to be men and women that live by your word, that live by faith. Lord, we want to see these things accomplished in our hearts, our minds, and our lives. So uh, fill us with your spirit. Empower us, Lord, that we could see your kingdom coming, your will being done in us and through us and by us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.